Well, church, let me invite you to turn into your Bibles in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. Uh, we're beginning uh, a new study today in this wonderful little letter that Paul has written for us. And I'm excited to be able to spend some time in it with you. And uh, I trust that God will bless us as we consider this this morning. I don't, I don't know if you ever feel like this, but when you, when you open the Bible to a new passage... It sometimes feels like you're, you're unwrapping a present, doesn't it? It's like, it's like a gift, and you can't wait to explore what you find and uh, delight in what you discover. And I've certainly have had that feeling as I've been studying First Thessalonians for the past couple months, and I'm, I'm just delighted to be able to speak to you from it. And I hope and trust that God will do a great work in us and through us because of it. And so here we are in First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now, and we pray that you would help us to understand this this truth before us as we think about what the church was like long ago and aspire in many ways to become like it, to see the fruit that was born in this church be born in our church, to see the gospel flourish and have great power in our lives as we work out our faith together and love and labor together and endure and hope together. And so we ask, especially even now, that your spirit would come upon us and that the gospel that is proclaimed today, the word that is taught today, would not come only in words, but in power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And so do this work even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many uh, Chinese Christians today are being sent forth as missionaries to areas that are very difficult for Westerners to go to. Largely in Southeast Asia, in difficult and closed countries, Chinese missionaries are able to get into there. They're challenging places because Christianity is not welcome there. In fact, those who often bring Christianity or adhere to Christianity suffer because of it. At one point, a particular Chinese missionary had been repeatedly beaten and tortured and imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Uh, he, he writes in his devotional, and one evening he was in prison with both his legs being broken. He, uh, he lied on his back and he, he propped up his legs against the wall to find some ease to his pain. And he goes on in, the, in his devotional to explain that the church in China teaches that followers of Jesus need to be ready for five realities. They need to be ready to, one, pray, 
Two, share the gospel. Three, suffer for Jesus. Four, die for Jesus. And five, escape if possible to continue to share the story of Jesus. They need to pray, speak, suffer, escape, or die. In fact, he goes on and he uh, writes uh, one of his chapters in his devotionals entitled Chocolate Soldiers. And he quotes a a very famous uh, missionary, 19th century missionary to China and India who endured great hardship. His name is C.T. Studd. And, And Studd is a good name for him, to be honest. Because he once said famously, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell, right? And so Stud would go to wherever he felt um, there, there needed rescuing, and there he would seek to rescue people. Well, uh, this Chinese missionary quotes Stud saying, A chocolate Christian dissolves in water and melts at the smell of fire. Living their lives in a glass dish, each clad in his soft clothing. God never was a chocolate manufacturer and never will be. In other words, what he's explaining is that God is seeking to use Christians who don't melt whenever trouble comes. Sounds, in many ways, a lot like a man named Paul who wrote this letter, 1 Thessalonians. In fact, we see here in this letter that the gospel has come to Thessalonica, and if it's to last, if it's to endure, they would need to be able to stand the fire. And in fact, they did so in this wonderful church uh, because it was greatly loved. You notice that this was a loved church. And I want to show you this, not from 1 Thessalonians, but I just want to get kind of a context. So if you'll turn over to the book of Acts. We're going to, of course, come back to 1 Thessalonians this morning. But Acts shows us how this church was planted. And so you might find this interesting to go to Acts 17 to see how is it that the gospel got there. Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he is uh, traveling on this second trip throughout Turkey, where he went on his first trip. And his goal is to strengthen the churches that he planted there on that first trip. Well, halfway through Paul's journey through Turkey, he, God stops him. We're not sure how. And he has a night vision of a Macedonian man calling Paul, come to us, bring the gospel. And so Paul understands this to be a divine summons to leave what, what they would call minor Asia, we call Turkey, and cross the sea over into Macedonia, or what we would call Greece. That is, Paul and his companions, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, would be the, the first known missionaries, at least, to take the gospel to, to Europe. Of course, all this is the Roman Empire at this time, but this would set the trajectory for the gospel westward, impacting, of course, the entire continent. And Paul would arrive there. He would first preach at a, a city called Philippi. And, and a miraculous work began immediately. People were coming to salvation. And yet as soon as the gospel began to go, the opposition rose up. If you remember the story, that Paul and Silas were grabbed, brought to the city square in front of the entire city. They were stripped naked from head to toe and beaten with rods. And then after being beaten with rods for good measure, thrown into a dungeon in the inner cell, door locked, and just in case that wasn't enough, their feet being locked in stocks. 
Well, it wasn't until the morning that they realized that Paul was a Roman soldier and this extrajudicial beating was against the law. And so the leaders meekly asked Paul and Silas and the rest of them to leave, for which I'm sure they were happy to do so. Well, they traveled westward along uh, a very famous road called the Via Ignatia. Uh, it's an it's a east-west road that would go all the way to Rome. It still exists, by the way. And they would come to the capital of Macedonia, a city called Thessalonica. And it's a huge city, about a quarter million people living there. Um, due to this road and the harbor, it had a vibrant economy. It was, in fact, one of the most influential cities in all of the Roman Empire. Many have likened it to the, to the New York or the Los Angeles of its day. Very culturally significant, uh, geographically significant, very strategic. And so perhaps Paul thought if we could get the gospel here, we plant a church here, this could be a launching pad for the gospel work in the surrounding areas. And so here he is in Thessalonica, and we pick up that story in Acts 17, verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue to the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And so Paul gets there, he heads straight for the synagogue, and, and for three, different, three weeks he's allowed to preach. And he's there, of course, not to tell them stories, not to tickle their ears and scratch their bellies. What does he want to do? He wants to reason. You see that reason from Scripture. He teaches them the Word of God. Specifically, he centers on the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you see in verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so he points to Jesus. And by God's grace, what? Many believe. In fact, you see who believed in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And so all of a sudden you have this church there. you got a handful of Jews. You have a lot of uh, Gentiles who are attached to the synagogue. And you have another group, a, a group of prominent women. And yet, just like in Philippi, this good news creates quite a bit of turmoil. In fact, the members of the synagogue who don't believe don't really like Paul anymore preaching and bringing their, their members away into this newfound faith. They're furious at Paul, and they respond with riots and violence. Once again, look in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous in taking some of the wicked men, uh, excuse me, some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And so they go looking for Paul in this, in this riot. This, this city is just in an uproar, right? And, and there they are. You can imagine torches and pitchforks and all the rest. And they're going looking for Paul, and they can't find him. So they grab the next best thing, Jason who evidently is letting Paul, the missionary, stay in his house, this new believer, and they bring him before the authorities with this terrible accusation. There in verse 6, isn't it? And these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And so the, the accusation is, hey, listen, these guys are upending the entire empire. Maybe we've already heard of them. And now they've made it to our fair city. And what are they doing? They're doing the same thing here. They're turning it upside down. In fact, they're even teaching insurrection, rebellion. 
that there is another king, and it is not Caesar, but it is this man named Jesus. And so this, uh, this opposition is intense and severe, and in light of that, and probably in light of the events at Philippi, the new converts say, hey, maybe it's best that you leave. They send the missionaries away, as you see in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And so off they go, um, tiptoeing out of town, leaving this fragile church behind. Maybe a church that's a, maybe a month old. I trust this is incredibly painful for Paul. He, he must have thought of them in the coming days, wondering how they're doing, his brothers and sisters in Christ. How are they faring without his leadership? But he has other work to do. He's off in Berea. He sees some success in Berea, if you'll remember. But, but remember what happened. Well, the gospel gets planted in Berea. And the Jews from Thessalonica, they hear what's going on in Berea. They're so annoyed that they grab their mob and they march the distance from Thessalonica. And they go to Berea and they chase Paul out of Berea. And so he leaves for Athens. And while he's ministering there in Athens among these scoffing pagan philosophers... Paul still clearly has the Thessalonians in mind because it's at Athens that he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to teach and strengthen them. So turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Let me show you this. So Paul is there in Athens and he's, he's ministering there, of course, but he's still thinking about this church. And so if you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we read Paul say this with very emotive language. Verse 1, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, bear what? Bear not knowing how they're faring. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we set Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and exhort you in your faith. And so off Timothy goes, leaving Paul there alone in Athens. There's very little fruit that's taking place in Athens, so Paul limps his way into Corinth. Okay, now, so just kind of put all that together, right? He goes to Philippi. He's beaten, humiliated, imprisoned. He goes to Thessalonica. The city erupts in a riot, and so he has to sneak out under the cover of darkness. He goes to Berea. Those riotous mob chase him down there, and he has to flee out of that town. He gets to Athens, and they're so full of himself, they just mock him for the resurrection, right? You want that job? Sound like fun to you? Right? And now he's in this vast city of Corinth. He's been he's bruised, beaten, harassed. He's alone. He's full of discouragement. In fact, later he would write to the Corinthians saying, When I first came to you, I came in weakness. I came in fear. And if that's not clear enough, I came in much trembling. I came here not knowing what I'm doing, where I should be going, and terrified as to what would happen to me once I open my mouth. I mean, Paul is at a state at this point where, where, where he's on very, a very rocky foundation. And it seems as if God knows. God knows this man needs encouragement. And so what does God do? He dispatches Timothy, who went to Thessalonica, remember, back to Paul and meets up in Corinth with news from the Thessalonians. And he comes to Paul and he says, Paul, I know things have been hard, but I've just been in Thessalonica, and you need to know what's happening there. And you can imagine Paul saying, tell me what's going on. And he says to Paul, Paul, they love us. They love you. 
They miss you. They want to see you. And they are suffering, but their faith is only growing. And months of mental anguish in the apostle are immediately relieved, replaced with joy and new resolve to minister. For you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul's response to Timothy's good report. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, right? Timothy has returned. He's given us this report. What? For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted. We have been encouraged about you through your faith. So Paul finds new encouragement as God graciously gives him perspective. Yeah, you're suffering a lot. But I want you to see what the, the fruit that's, that's being born through your gospel ministry. If you read in Acts, it seems once Timothy shows up, this is Acts 18, we don't have term there. Timothy shows up and Paul now has a renewed vigor to reach the city of Corinth. But before he does that, he sits down and writes the book, 1 Thessalonians. Which would make it written in the spring of 50 A.D., uh, which establishes 1 Thessalonians as one of the oldest Christian writings that we have. In fact, the only older Christian writing that we know of is the book of Galatians. 50 AD, about 15 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. And so I think that's important as we work our way through it. What's also important is that we read this letter, and I hope even that little intro has helped you. We read this letter not as a theological essay. This is not, a, not an article on the internet, Right? And that's kind of my tendency is to, where are the theological propositions? I want to pull out the, the nuggets and I want to apply them to my life. I want to learn truth. And certainly we'll do so. But my friends, this is a love letter of a, of a church planner to a church that he desperately loves. And he writes this letter and it's really easy to outline chapter 1. It's largely a prayer of thanks. Chapters 2 and 3, Paul is defending his ministry against the accusations that he was some greedy and perverted theological huckster, and he just bailed on them as soon as things got tough. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he seeks to settle some theological issues, and he wants to exhort them to be devoted to one another. Obviously, Paul was interrupted mid-teaching, right? He had to get out of town at night, as we've seen, and so there's much truth that he wasn't able to get to. He's going to try to establish that. In particular, there seems to be a great deal of confusion about the second coming of Jesus, right? Some things never change, right? They don't know what's going on, and so Paul, Paul wants to clarify that. You'll, in fact, he'll refer to the return of Jesus in each of these five chapters, and it is the major theme in 2 Thessalonians. And well, here we are in chapter 1. He begins by uh, praying for the church, which was created by the gospel. And then, and that's from verses 1 through 5, verses 5 through 10, which we'll consider next time, God willing. He then prays for the gospel, which the church is spreading. See, that's the pattern. The gospel comes, creates the church. The church then, what, proclaims the gospel, which creates more churches, which then go on to proclaim the gospel, and it continues even this day. And so what do you say about this gospel-created church? Well, we've already seen it's a love church. Secondly, you see it's God's church. God's church. So here we are, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. He begins, uh, as, he, as kind of standard way he begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. 
Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul, uh, by the way, is the, the Greek word means small. Small. There is a biblical legend that Paul was a very small man. Chrysostom, I think it was around the 4th century, said Paul was three cubits tall. If I, if I remember my measurements, it's about four and a half feet. Okay? Uh, we don't know if that's true, but that's what he said. There's one second century writing that describes Paul. You want to know what Paul looked like? Right? This second century writing describes Paul as, quote, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, a man small in size, with meeting eyebrows, a large nose, full of grace. For at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. Right? So is this why, you know, of course his name was Saul. Is this why God renamed him? To go from Saul, which means asked of God, to Paul, which means small, just because he's a small guy? I don't think so. In fact, I, I, I don't think it has anything to do with his stature, whether he's small or not. It has everything to do with Paul's humility. Is, is he not the one who said, I am the chief of sinners? Is he in the one who's not said, I am the least of the saints? A man of great deal of humility was Paul. He goes there with Silvanus. His friends call him Silas, right? Same guy. Silvanus simply means God of the woods. Um, even we have an English word. We don't use it often. Sylvan, which means wooded. And so you got Pennsylvania, which is just a wooded area of Penn, right? And so you got Silvanus. Remember, Silvanus was picked up. Remember, Barnabas and Paul went on the first trip. They were going out on a second trip. They got in a little tiff about whether to take John Mark. So Barnabas grabs John Mark. Off he goes. And Paul grabs who? Silas or Silvanus. And he would be Paul's chief assistant on this missionary trip. And then thirdly, you got Timothy, who was a convert to Christianity on Paul's first trip. And then he's coming back through on the second trip. He picks him up. We know Timothy was an incredibly timid man. And always complaining about an upset tummy. And always having to be encouraged. Be bold, Timothy. Be courageous, Timothy. You think, well, maybe this guy's not going to be a big help to Paul. Well, you'll find out in this book he was massively important. So that's who, who's writing this book, if you will. At least Paul listing his fellow missionaries. We know, of course, Paul would lead in writing this. Who's it to? Well, it's to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice he's not writing, and this is important for us to realize, not to the Christians of Thessalonica, but to the church. I'm writing to the church of uh, the church of the Thessalonians. The word church just means assembly, ecclesia, assembly. Church, we use it as, uh, as only a religious word. It was not a religious word. The, the word ecclesia was used whenever there would be a gathering of people for uh, political reasons, for religious reasons. You, see, you read the word, though we don't translate it this way. You read the word church throughout the Old Testament, but it's always translated assembly. See, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the church or the assembly was used to describe Israel whenever they gathered together. So you have a church in the Old Testament, and you have the church in the New Testament, and the church in the New Testament is simply the extension of those who first gathered, the first assembly, the first church, the Bible says, to worship God at the foot of Sinai. You notice that the church has two homes here, right? It's the church of the Thessalonians in God, so their home is in the world, them in particular in Thessalonica and in God. They live in both places, if you will. And uh, there it is, of course, a church founded in God. I, I want you to see this. The church is in God. 
somehow we've gotten in our very independent, individualized Western culture, we got this idea in our head that the church was something that, got, that man created. That, that maybe there's a bunch of Christians one day, and they thought, you know what we should do? We should all start gathering together. Okay, that's a good idea. Let's call that the church. Well, that, that's totally non-biblical. That the church was something that God created. This is a church that's created in, in Thessalonia, in God, we read. This is God's plan, God's institution. And to have a Christian who is not attached to the church, which are all seen in local assemblies, is utterly foreign in the Bible. You don't see any free agent Christians running around, right? They're always in the church. It would be like saying, I'm, a, I'm part of God's people in the Old Testament, but I'm neglecting Israel. I mean, it would be an unheard of category. And so here they are. God, he's there. I'm not just making Christians. I'm planting churches. And the church is in God the Father, but also, notice, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are the source of the church's life. You'll read in verse 5 that the Holy Spirit also has a role in bringing this church into being. I mention that because we are only 15 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord. And Paul is already using triune language. He's already speaking of God in terms of the Trinity. He also is elevating the divinity of Jesus there in verse 1. Putting Jesus on equal footing with God the Father. And giving Jesus the name Yahweh or the name Lord. I mention that because there's a whole bunch of nonsense on the bestseller list and all the movies that say the divinity of Jesus and the triune nature of of God is some third century development with a bunch of hooded bishops in a candlelit room trying to consolidate power by developing these theological uh, realities hundreds of years after the events actually took place. Well, you have one of the er earliest Christian writings and it's very clear that Paul is affirming the divinity of Jesus and the triune nature of the Lord, that this church is found in God and in Jesus, and therefore there is grace and peace. Look how he ends that little introduction. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. So Paul, remember, spent his early days seeking to beat, imprison, and kill Christians. And now he's suffering to plant churches full of them. What happened? One word. Grace. Grace happened. Grace is our standing before God. That all people are alienated from a holy God no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, and yet God offers us grace through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. I tell you this morning, you can be saved by grace. You will not be saved by your works. But God offers you grace. He offers you mercy. And that grace leads to peace. The river of peace flows from the fountain of grace, doesn't it? Grace to you and peace, he says. In the Greek mind, peace was an absence of war. But for the Hebrews, peace is the fullness of life. So when Paul says peace to you, he's not saying, I hope you don't get in a fight. He's not saying, I hope you don't get in an argument with your spouse. What he is saying is that I hope you live in abundance. I hope you live in fullness. I want peace to you. Now the world, you you understand, Christian, the world doesn't know peace. They long for peace. So many are living lives of loneliness, 
anxiety and bondage, and they think things might bring them peace. So they buy things and buy more things, and there's no peace there. The heart always demands more and more and more. Maybe they say, well, maybe there's peace and success. Maybe there's peace and acclaim, but there's always more to achieve. Maybe some of you have stumbled in here this morning, and your hearts are full of anxiety. Your life is full of trouble. Your mind is full of confusion. And you think, is peace available? Can I have peace? Yeah, you can. But it's only found through the grace of God in yielding your life to him in faith and devotion. I offer you peace this morning in the name of Jesus. This is God's church. Well, you also see that Paul goes on now and begins to pray for this church. And he gives thanks in particular that it is a fruitful church. A fruitful church. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So Paul says, I'm just thanking God for you. Notice he's not congratulating them, though I'm sure that would be fine. Well done. Good job on standing firm. I don't think there would be anything wrong with that. But rather, he wants to thank God, for he believes it's God who keeps them and God who strengthens them. So he says, I'm, thank, I'm praying God, praising God for you. I'm thanking God for you. And I'm doing so what? Constantly. This is a continual prayers. Look what he says in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, listen, I'm just constantly remembering you. Not occasionally. These aren't intermittent prayers. This is continual prayers. In fact, throughout this letter, Paul's prayer for them is a reoccurring theme. He's committing this church to God through prayer. One has written, just as little children are never far from the thoughts of their parents, so Paul's continually mindful of his children. Their well-being is no passing concern for him. It is deep and abiding. And so he's praying. You can imagine Paul, Silas, and Timothy gathering together at mealtime. And Paul's saying, hey, before we eat, let's pray for the Thessalonians. Let's, let's pray for them. Let's give thanks for them. Let's ask God to work in their life. And I think this is an incredible example to us, a model for us, in particular for those of you who lead community groups and those of you who serve as deacons and those of you who lead Sunday school classes and serve as elders. I think this is incredibly important that we realize part of the ministry of leadership is a ministry of prayer. We ought to be praying for the people that God has put under our influence. We ought to be praying for them, praising God for them, thanking God for them, and asking God to work. And I think one day we'll actually discover how much of what God has done in building and strengthening and prospering his church has been done in response to the faithful, continual prayers of those who God has put in leadership. And so Paul prays for them. And uh, could you imagine just reading this? Paul writing this letter, and you love Paul, and you haven't seen him in a while. And he says, I want you to know I'm always praying for you. I just think that they must have been so built up, so encouraged by this. It's William Drummond who says, you'll find if you think for a moment that those who influence you the most are people who believe in you. In an atmosphere of suspicion, men shrivel up and die. But in an atmosphere of love and encouragement, men grow. Right? We, we should encourage and affirm those in our lives. This is what Paul's doing here. 
He, he's, he's not manipulating him, but he's recognizing what God is doing. He says, look, I see God doing this, and I see God doing this. I see God doing this. I praise God for it, and this is what we should do. We should look for what God's doing in our life and tell him what we see. Praise God for it. In fact, what does Paul affirm? Well, you notice there in verse 3, what? Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. He affirms their what? Faith, hope, and love. The three eminent Christian graces. And he sees that's their fruit. He says, I can, I can see your faith that you placed in God. I can see their, your love that you expressed to others. I can see your hope in looking towards the future. And I, I see all this. But notice he just doesn't recognize faith, hope, and love. He recognizes the fruit of these realities. What is faith doing in their life? What is love doing there? What is hope doing? And he says, listen, your faith is working. Your love is laboring. Your hope is enduring. In fact, he begins by saying, praising them for a working faith. The work of faith, he says there in verse 3. You see, the fruit of faith is good works. The fruit of faith is obedience, devotion, righteousness, holiness. Of course, we're not saved by works, but we're we're saved by faith. But the faith that saves us, if it doesn't lead to good works, the Bible says it's a dead faith. I think it was the reformers who said repeatedly, though we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is not alone. It produces good works. He goes on and says, I praise God for your laboring love. The fruit of your love is what? Is labor. The word labor, by the way, is different from the word works. It means hard work. Arduous toil means sweat and fatigue. And Paul says, I, just so, I thank God so much for your toiling labor for other people because you love them. And I'm sure Paul's laboring. He says, I'm fatigued here in Corinth, but knowing you're fatigued there in Thessalonica is a great encouragement to me, and I'm just so excited to see it. And you notice the love that he's, he's commending is not simply nice feelings. I just, he, well, you really feel nicely towards others. It's not sentimentality. He is saying your love is actually leading to labor for them, as Christ has labored for us. So I don't think you consider the love of Christ and then just shrug your shoulders and go on with a self-focused, individualistic life. If you truly understand the love that God has shown for you in Jesus, it will give you the the love that will lead to sweat and tears and and even burden yourself for other people. It was a... um, the church father um, Aristides, who wrote about 100 years after this letter. And he described, you want to know what Christians were like in the year 150? He said the Christians persuade others to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, they call themselves without distinction brothers. It doesn't matter what class you are, we're all now equal in Christ, we're brothers. He says they walk in humility and kindness, and there is... And if there is among them a man who is poor and needy, they fast two or three days so that they might supply the needy with necessary food. That's how you know they're Christians. How did Jesus say, how will will the world know we're Christians? By our love for one another. That a love will propel labor and sacrifice even to the point of weariness. So my, my brothers and sisters in Hamilton Baptist Church, how are we doing? Are we laboring in love for one another? Well, I, I think maybe we got a mixed grade on this one. 
It was last month that your elders called for the church to gather to pray for our sick and troubled. We, the elders stood and said, we, we, we do this every four months. We're going to gather. We're going to lay on hands. We're going to pray for the members in our church that desperately need it. And very few of you decided to come. Most of you stayed away. The vast majority of you stayed away. I mean, it was a powerful time. It was a blessing to those who prayed. It was a blessing to those who received pray, prayer. But I'll be perfectly honest. I am, I am rarely more discouraged as a pastor than when I call for this church to pray. When the elders say, we are gathering you to pray. And the vast majority of you say, no thanks. We'd rather not. We'll stay away. And to be perfectly honest, I, I mean... Josh has to talk me off the ledge a little bit because I, I really question my own pastoral effectiveness. I mean, it's a running joke now that Paul walks in, or jo- Josh walks into my office the morning after these events and says, give me your resume, right? And he, says, and he throws it away and tells me to get back to work, okay? Because I, to be honest, I want you to have a pastor that can lead you. And, and when, I, when we call you to pray and you say, nope, not going to do it, I really wonder what am I, what am I doing? To be perfectly honest. I wonder, as I read this passage, where is our labor in love for one another? You know, the Bible tells us that we are a body of Christ. And if that's true of Hamilton Baptist Church, the scripture says when one part suffers, what? We all suffer. There are people in our church who are dying. Right? Literally, not figuratively. There are people in our church who are fighting for their lives. And we have the great honor to gather and pray for them. Pray for their soul. Pray for their health. Pray for their families. And I, and I wonder why we don't want to do that. And if we truly are loving one another. You do realize, and I'm only speaking to members of the members, not, not our regular attenders. Members of Hamilton Baptist Church, you have made a vow. You have said, we will bear each other's burdens. We will aid each other in sickness and distress. That is your vow that you've made to every other member of this church. May I encourage you to keep that vow. Now, I say all this with two caveats. I don't expect everyone to come. You have life. You have kids. You have commitments. You have other things going on in your life. And and I, I give all of you a pass, right? Live your life. Not everyone can can make it. But most, I'm not many, let me just put it this way. Many of you thought, should I come to that prayer meeting? And you thought, largely, what you want to do and very little about what your church needs you to do. What does my church need from me right now? And even as I say that, I hear the Lord whispering in my own heart, what about you, Steve? What about you? As you admonish your church, are you laboring? And so I need to grow in this area. And I, my prayer is that God would give us repentance, that we would fall in love with God so much that that love would flow out in a laboring for one another. And Paul looks at it and sees it in Thessalonica. He says, your faith works, your love labors, your hope endures. The fruit of hope is endurance. You see that there, there in verse 3, don't you? Now, we don't value endurance in our culture very much, as you know. Um, we don't value endurance in jobs. We don't value endurance in ministry. I think the average tenure of a, 
pastor in America at, at, per church is four years. It's not something we value. We don't value endurance and relationships in our culture. So we, we make, in our culture, we are very reluctant to make commitments. And often when we make commitments, we don't keep those commitments. And I just think, hey, let's swim against the tide on this one. What do you think? Let's endure. Let's be people who are enduring, enduring in hope. I love the story of Florence Chadwick, who on July 4th in 1952 entered the waters off Catalina Island and sweat to, set out to swim for California. I think it's over 20 miles. She'd be the first woman to do this, but she's already, she already swam the English Channel twice, so this is something she could do. And yet after 15 hours of swimming, she asked to be taken out of the water just about 30 minutes short of the beach there in California. So why, why did she want to come out? Was it the cold water, cold Pacific? It's cold out there. Was it the sharks that were swimming by her? Was it exhaustion? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't any of those. It was the fog. In fact, later she would say, if I could only have seen the land, I might have made it. And I think mo- most, mo- more Christians are being, t- take me out of the water. I can't do this anymore. Not because of the cold, not because they're afraid, not because they're overwhelmed. They ask to be taken out, not because of the trouble in their life, but because the fog has obscured their vision of the end. They have forgotten how to hope, how to look to the future. And so I tell you, my brothers and sisters, when the troubles of your life seem overwhelming, simply do not fix your gaze upon the day-to-day burdens in which you bear, but gaze your eyes upon what God has prepared for you, what you will one day walk into and endure. Not, and not even in grim determination, but with an active focus on the certainty of your future in Jesus. In fact, Paul, who suffered perhaps more than any of us, said, look what, I consider these light momentary afflictions not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory set before me, so I press on, I endure. And here it is, the church in Thessalonica, maybe less than a year old, and Paul says, your hope is enduring, your love is laboring, your faith is working, because Christ has changed everything about you, and the fruit is evident in your lives. And I I just think this is what we need to gaze on this morning, because Paul doesn't look at them and say, well, I just praise God that your church is so big. Or I just praise God that your leaders are so effective. Or I just praise God uh, for the amount of your budget. He says, I praise God for what he's doing in your lives. And may this be true of our church. May our Christianity increasingly shape the way we live. For all Christians are to be believers and lovers and hopers. Are you? Maybe, maybe that would be a good conversation over lunch. Maybe you turn, turn to a loved one, a friend, and say, okay, tell me about the fruit of your faith. Where do you see it? Tell me about the fruit of your love. Tell me about the fruit of your hope. And as Paul considers all of what God is doing in them, he has great confidence, even to the point of saying he knows they were chosen. They're chosen. Consider, lastly, this is a chosen church. Look what he says in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's chosen you. Eclectos. Literally, he has elected you. Right? So when we elect a leader in America, 
we choose them to lead. And here we see God is choosing them to be His. He's choosing them to be saved. And so we might ask somebody, well, why, why, is, why is he a Christian? Why is she a Christian? And we might answer, well, well, she's a Christian because she has believed in the gospel. And that would be a true answer. But we might a- ask a secondary question. Well, why did she believe in the gospel when others don't believe in the gospel? Why do you believe in the gospel, Christian, when others don't? Are, are you wiser? Are you smarter? Are you more gullible? Why is it that you believe? Well, the Bible tells us repeatedly. Why do we believe? Because he has chosen you. He cho- what does it say? He chose you. So we, we have to believe. The belief is ours. But the enabling of our belief was God's election of you. That took place in ages past. In fact, the Bible in Ephesians says he chose us before the foundation of the world. And by the way, there's nothing new here. This is not a New Testament concept. God's sovereign election has been one of the great themes of all Scripture. I mean, what is the Old Testament language of Israel? What What do they repeatedly refer to? As God's chosen people. And now Paul applies that same term to what? This Gentile, largely Gentile church in Thessalonica. They are God's chosen people. The Old Testament title of chosen people has been transferred in the New Testament to the Christian community. He chose you. Now, I know even saying that, some of you don't, don't even like this already, right? Some of you, you, you think, well, I, I, don't, I don't care for this doctrine, and I wish we wouldn't talk about it, and, and, and I, I have my period of that, and you think it's cold and impersonal, right? What is this, some kind of lottery that God just kind of like, your name pops up, and God chooses you, and, and, and lucky you, and all the rest? Well, I want you to notice why. Why did God choose? Look what it says there in verse 4. We know, brothers, what? Loved by God. That he has chosen you. Right? See, see, he chose you because he loves you. Election is always linked to God's love. What do we read in Deuteronomy 7? About Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the God, what? Set his love on you and chose you. See how they're linked? For you are the fewest of all people, but it is because God loves you. And so Paul comes and says, listen, you're chosen. I trust that was great assurance to them. This was not an ugly doctrine in Paul's mind that's just going to lead to church disputes. He says this ought to provide great encouragement that your salvation is totally dependent upon God and therefore is totally secure. In fact, he's so confident. What does he say there in verse 4? We know. We know. How does he know God's secret choosing? How does anyone know? Well, only in retrospect. Right? You, you only know once the gospel comes. And notice there, and we'll end here in verse 5, the four different ways in which the gospel came. Look, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in words. Now, he doesn't say it didn't come in words. Right? The gospel must come in words. People have to hear the gospel. The Bible says, how will they hear unless they, how will they believe unless they what? Hear. And how will they hear unless someone preaches them? And so, so, so Paul preaches. The, the idea that God elects doesn't make evangelism unnecessary. That would be a, a foreign idea in Paul's mind. And so he came to them with the gospel. And he said, listen, there's a God who created you. And the God who has standards for you to live. And you, like me, and all the rest have gone our own way. We've sought our own things. And we don't live for this God. And because this God is good and holy, he will judge us for that rebellion. And yet God in his grace has made a way for us to be reconciled back to him, to be saved by sending his son into this world. 
And the son would live a perfect life, enabling him to be the only person ever to die, not for his own sins, but as a substitute for ours. And then God proved that this happened by raising him three days later from the dead. And now whoever believes in him, whoever yields their life to him in repentant faith, will be saved. That's what Paul told them. God, man, Christ responds. The gospel. And they believed it. Right? Came not just in words, but it did come in words. Listen. That message must continually be proclaimed, whether publicly from a pulpit or private witnessing over a cup of coffee. We must use words. But it didn't come just in words. Notice it came, what, in power, right? But also in power. When, and this is what you need to get, Christian. When the gospel is shared, the power of God is present. Romans 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The message of the cross is the power of God. Not it brings power, not it will result in power. It is the power. It is the power. The gospel is power, right? You ever hear someone say, you ever invite someone to church and they say, why would I want to come to church, right? Why, why would anyone want to listen to a guy speak for what, 35 minutes? What are we at, right? <laughs> right? Why, why, why would I want that? Where else in our culture, name it, where we all gather together by the hundreds and listen to a monologue? Right? No one does that. Right? I want to be entertained. I want there to be you know, laser beams and dim the lights and thumping music. Right? I, want, I want to laugh. I want there to be stories, a little crying somewhere there. Right? Why listen to a monologue? Well, how, how do you answer that? I'll tell you how I answer it. Well, there's no reason at all. That sounds awful to me. Why would anybody want to do that? Just listen to words? But you see, when the message of the cross is preached, it's not just words. It's power. It's the power of God. Whether from behind a pulpit or tomorrow night with your children in your living room, it's God's power. You say, how can that be possible? Well, look what he says. It's in the Holy Spirit. Power in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers the words of the gospel. I mean, and is this not your story? I mean, it's my story. How many, how many times have you, you know, some of you would say, I would think, yeah, I heard the gospel, and I heard the gospel, and I heard the gospel, and there was no change, there was no movement, there was no feel for a need of a Savior, and then one day I heard it, and everything was different. Everything. And you felt the weight in your heart, and you got a sense of the glory of God, and you felt God calling you to him, what is that? That's the Spirit of God applying the gospel in power, stirring you to faith, right? And therefore, it's a very serious thing to hear the word of God be stirred in your soul and, and, and feel that call to repent and yet to douse that fire and say, no, thank you. You silent that voice. Because you are under the assumption that the Spirit will stir you again. And the Bible never guarantees that. He may not. You, you, you may never know if you will hear the voice of God like that and again. That's why the scripture says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but receive him. Because it may not come again. 
And I wonder, maybe God's even calling one of you now. You hear him in your heart. Will you not come to me? I offer you salvation and grace. Will you not believe? Would you have the faith to submit your life to King Jesus and receive the grace of the one who died and rose for you? You see, it comes not just with words, but power and the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, what? With deep conviction. Or maybe your translation says much assurance. Paul had conviction that when he preached, the gospel went out in powered words from the Holy Spirit. You and I need that conviction. I think the reason we don't share our faith, at least one of them, is we don't believe it will do anything. And we think that person's too smart, that person has his life together, that person's far gone, as if their reception of the gospel is dependent upon your ability to answer their questions and communicate the truth. You, if that's your idea, you are totally discounting the reality that the Bible says there is power in the proclamation. There is the power of God. And Paul was convinced. He came with deep conviction, and, and, and therefore he was willing to endure this suffering that God's word would work mightily. He was convinced of it, just as Gaylord Combarney believed it. Perhaps I've shared this story with you before, but Gaylord Combarney, an African, once offered a man uh, a Bible. The man said, listen, if you give me that Bible... I'm going to tear out the pages and roll up the pages to make cigarettes. And uh, Kambarni said, okay, just as long as you agree to read the page first. Fifteen years later, he's at an evangelistic conference, and the man speaking on the platform interrupts his message and points at Kambarni, who's sitting in the congregation, and he says, this man doesn't remember me, but 15 years ago he gave me a Bible. And even though I told him I would use the pages to roll cigarettes, he made me promise to read the pages before I smoked them. Well, I smoked Matthew. I smoked Mark. I smoked Luke. But when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment. And that man, who was as far from Christ as any, became a missionary because of the power of the gospel. That gospel formed this church in Thessalonica. It's no different than the gospel here today in 2019. We're no different than that church, Hamilton Baptist Church. We too are God's church. We too are loved. We too are called to be fruitful. And we too, by God's grace, are chosen because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross. And so let's celebrate that work through this Lord's Supper. Will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for this meal? Father, we are thankful that we too are your church. That you too in your grace have brought us into this body. That you have worked in such a way that you have had a church there in Thessalonica in 50 AD and now a church in Hamilton in 2019, a church that believes the same gospel, a church that seeks to bear the same fruit, a church that rejoices and finds great assurance in your sovereign choice of us. And so we pray that you would increasingly form us as the people of God we're called to be. And we know that all that we do and all that we bear and all that we can become as individuals and as a church 
is because of the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross. So even now we come to this meal and we ask that you would help us to be mindful. We would remember, perhaps as we're holding the bread or the cup is placed in our hand, we would be thinking of the time when Jesus gave that last supper. Or maybe we would think of his trials, remember the accusations, the torture. Perhaps we would call to mind him parading through the streets of Jerusalem with a lacerated back and a beam upon his shoulders. Maybe we would remember the curses and the mocks as he was pinned to that tree, hoisted high above in great derision. Perhaps we would think, as we wait for all to receive the elements, that shuddering cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that he was forsaken so that we might be accepted. Let us remember the love shown for us on Calvary. Let us remember the gospel that we might be transformed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.